You're listening to the official podcast of the Ohio Department of Developmental Disabilities with your host, Director Jeff Davis. So, hello everyone. My name is Jeff Davis, Director of the Ohio Department of Developmental Disabilities. And we have some very special guests with us today, Susan Brown-Knight and Brian Hart with LAD down in Hamilton County. LAD is a provider and LAD has been, I would say, in the forefront of a very specific and I would say aspirational vision and mission and how they better support people, give people more independence and autonomy and control and how they use technology as a piece of the puzzle in doing that. So welcome, Susan and Brian. Thank you. It's nice to be with you and perhaps I should go for Susan is the CEO or you can introduce yourselves. Why don't you do that? I'm the CEO of LAD, and again, we are based in Cincinnati and serve throughout Hamilton County. And I am the, uh, the Chief Strategy Officer here at LAD. Love it. We are so happy to have you with us. Thank you for taking your time. I want to start out with just that. You have created a vision and a mission, and you are living that every day. So perhaps you can talk about that with a little history, if you wish, why you decided to go exactly where you're going on behalf of those you support. The way this all started really was, um, Lad, you know, they, we had a great reputation and I had just taken over, this was about five years ago, and was really committed to a couple things. First, making sure I'm meeting everybody we support and we support hundreds of folks across the community and also serving more folks. There, we had a constant stream, as all of us do, uh, of need. And we couldn't serve all of these needs that were coming through, whether they were stories that were horrific, or it was somebody that was, you know, firing on all fronts, but just didn't have the support to be able to leave their home that they grew up in. So there were all sorts of pressures and tensions to be able to serve more people. And whether somebody didn't have a waiver or whether we didn't have staff, but there were some challenges to growing and meeting those needs. So that was one thing. And that I think is why we all get into this work, right, is to be able to meet the needs of folks that need our supports. So as I was going through, and it, it took over a year to, to meet everybody we serve, going out one day a week and making sure I'm, I'm connecting and seeing folks where they're living. And it was interesting because I've got this pressure over here to serve more people. As I was meeting folks, especially in the 10 a.m. to 11 o'clock hour, but throughout the day, noticed I would come in and price is right or let's make a deal. It was always on. The staff were there. They were often watching with the, the folks receiving the services. And we have, I think, the best staff in the business. But we were required to be there. We were required to be doing that. So here was this tension that I felt between we need services and then our staff aren't needed in those moments. How is it that we have people struggling and needing supports that we can't give and we're watching the prices right with folks? How do we reconcile that? How do we connect the dots there? And our staff wanted to do more. They wanted to do things that added value, right? So that was one of the drivers. One of the other drivers was, and this is the challenging part of the work we're doing because it's, it is different. And I think people especially loved ones are going to struggle with this difference. So we had somebody we served for decades, beloved, a little grumpy, um, and he was in his late 70s. He ended, he had a stroke, or excuse me, a seizure, ended up, in, ended up in the hospital. 
no family. So we were there 24-7. His hand was always held in that hospital. He was never alone. The hospital staff, of course, were very, very, you know, oh, lad's great, lad's great. And we were there. He ended up passing. We had a funeral for him. And, you know, we went and we set it all up. We pulled the funds. We made it possible. And the, the funeral home was packed. And the funeral home was applauding, lad. Oh, this is great. This is wonderful. You guys are so great. And I sat in that funeral pew. And I looked around, there was not one person in those pews that at one point had not been paid to be in Jerry's life. And I just thought to myself, like, the world tells us we're wonderful, but are we, we're not really fulfilling our mission. That's not, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And that Jerry probably had so much to give and to participate. And we loved him. We, we surrounded him. He was safe. But that's not necessarily what we have been called to do as an agency. And so you put those all together and you say, what can we do that actually creates meaningful value for the people we support? What does that look like? Knowing that we can have loved ones that aren't happy with us, right? Because a lot of times families want that cocoon. But that cocoon means lots of other people who need our services aren't getting them. That cocoon means Jerry's full potential is probably not realized. And so what does it look like to be able to deliver supports that have value for the person being supported and create independence? Because at the end of the day, we are paid to show up. That's what the system does. It pays us to show up. It does not pay us to create a meaningful life for Jerry that is as independent as possible. And so we decided very intentionally, and then I'll send it over to Brian, very intentionally, we said, we're going to create an alternative model. We are not going to let the system dictate that model. We are going to let the needs of the people we support dictate that model. And that is what drove us to build out what we have today. What's different about what we're looking at is how do we take a system that's worked really well for a lot of people for decades and start to carve out areas where it hasn't worked great for a huge segment of our population. So many times we are just, like Susan said, we're showing up because as long as we walk through the door and check a box saying we were there, that's that's kind of what the outcome is. And we're, we are looking at how do we be more efficient with what we're doing. As an agency, we looked at all the different things that we have control over as an agency and how we provide service. How do we take accountability for what we're doing and be more efficient in the services. And we looked around and thought, what are the ways in which we could provide better outcomes with potentially the same amount of staff, but provide it to more people and provide them at a higher level? And, and looking around, and we found that you know technology at the rate that it's moving and the things that it can do is a really a natural entry point into how do we provide better service with you know less people to more people? And you think about the way that technology is is used in our lives, you know, for someone who I don't experience a developmental disability, and I use technology all the time. I, I talk about all the time how I, I grew up in a very small town, and I would love to probably go back and live in the 1950s as long as I could still have my iPhone. Everyone talks about how they're on their phone too much. I love it and want to be on it all the time. It's my favorite toy that I have. And I use it for all these things that are probably a novelty to me. But how do I take those things and, and change the way we use them just enough 
that it can help someone be more independent. It helps me be more independent. I moved to a, a new city a couple of years ago. I still can't get around. I got lost twice today trying to get around town. And without GPS, I'd probably still be out in Batavia, which is a town I'd never been to until today accidentally. And taking these ideas that help me be more independent in the community and using those for the people we serve. And so we took that as an idea that rather than say the system isn't working to provide the outcomes we want, how do we work within the system to find a different niche or a different loophole to, to work the system? What if instead we go out and we just say, we're going to try to create a new mechanism that works with the system we have for those where it makes perfect sense that need that round the clock caregiving service. And for everyone that doesn't, let's try a different way of doing it. And what we've developed and looked at is using the technology first as our, our starting point for how we deliver services. And I, I'm a, a transplant to Ohio. And, and when I first heard about what Ohio was doing around technology and, and heard about this, they're doing technology first and all the great things that were coming out and now being able to live it, that is exciting for me because we truly do now look at technology to deliver services. Technology has come so far that we really can provide the same level of support to someone using technology in a lot of cases. And what that allows us to do is then anytime technology can't provide support, that's where our people come in, those valuable people that we have. And the service they provide every time they come in is value added. So every time they walk through that door, they're not just walking in and waiting for things to happen. They're walking in, providing a targeted intervention, and then they leave, knowing that now all this thought that we've had for decades of we need staff there because, well, what if something happens or waiting for things to happen? That's where technology comes in. And that's what drives Vlad's mission. The idea that, you know, we talk about it all the time, but empowering people to be more independent. You know, there's a lot of words that go into a mission, but what boils down to is that's what we're focused on. Everything we do, we think about how is this affecting the individual? It makes the, the staff are always going to be there. We want them to be more engaged, but that's not what drives what we do. Trying to just fill emergency needs, that's not what driving what we do. It's really looking at our mission and how do we drive it from that standpoint? I so appreciate that, obviously. So before we get into perhaps sort of how you're doing it, give me a sense uh, from the human aspect. We are a human system. How are you seeing it impact those that you support? Oh my gosh, it's it has been so impressive of the human aspect we're seeing. I, I, I'm trying to decide where do I even go in this lane now? Six months ago, I'd have one or two little canned stories I could tell you, and now there's too many to even think of. But we are in a position now where we're serving individuals and giving them opportunities that without the use of technology, they wouldn't have. We have individuals who didn't have alone time because there was this fear of them being alone in the community. Either they were tagged as being a wanderer or they would wander into situations they shouldn't be in. And really simple, easy to use cheap technology is giving individuals an opportunity to be in the community alone for the first time in their lives. We're looking at not just how do we support someone in their home, but how do we use in the community? So making sure that people can leave their home. We are using smart refrigerator technology that was an awesome project that we partnered with you guys on at Dodd to take the health and wellness around the food that we're putting, bringing into our homes and putting into our body and putting the outcomes back on the individual to say, how do we teach people to buy healthy food, to manage the food they're bringing in, to be thinking ahead about what are they buying? What are they ordering? How do they go about meal planning? That type of technology has changed the way the individuals that are living in some of our homes it's changed the way they're they're thinking about what they eat and how they prepare their meals. They're healthier. We're tracking health outcomes around that. But also what we're finding is in, in one instance, 
we've reduced staff by over 100 hours per week. And what that has done for the four individuals in that home, and, and we look at it from an agency-wide perspective of, oh my gosh, think of what we're able to do with 100 extra hours somewhere else. But when we talk to the guys that are living in this home and we ask them, what is it like to not have staff there? And they get so excited to talk about how they love that they're empowered to be on their own. They talk about how one individual, he never liked having staff come in and watch check on him while he was asleep. That was part of the supports he was being provided and we thought it was necessary and it probably was, but we can do that with technology now. We don't have to do that. And what we're finding is their level of independence. Is, it obviously is naturally gonna go up because you have to eat eventually, but that's what's really exciting about some of the experiences that people have. One example, we have a, a young man who's getting to cook for the first time because the structure is set up. One, he's got verbal prompts to be able to help him. He's a visual impairment, so he hasn't ever been able to use an oven. And now he can use a safely use an oven for the first time in his life and is learning to cook. Brian said, we have a young man who's an older man who his entire, entire life, he would run away. And we asked the question, well, maybe he likes going for walks. And can he just go for walks? He knows how to cross a street. Is it okay if we can find him that he gets lost? And so, especially since he's in an area that is surrounded by sidewalks. So, you know, that's been a game changer for him. And it has also been a game changer because some of the technology, which I, I love the domino effect. So in sitting down and working with this particular person, okay, one, he can have loan time now. So that's good. Well, great. So then potentially remote supports can go in there, but we'll wait. He is by himself during the days. And that's not okay, right? A screen by yourself during the days. Why isn't he working, right? Why isn't he working? So now he has a, and, and that all of those questions kind of, when you start to really be outcomes-based, what does this life look like and how can we support him in having meaning? So now he has a job. <laughs> And so all of that came from the question of, all right, we're, we're wanting to bring technology into this person's life. What are the meaningful outcomes that need to happen? They're not all technology-based, but the technology drives a lot of those really uh, important questions. So whether it's the refrigerator, which is used religiously in one of our homes, so the, the meals cooked are amazing. The other opportunity we have, the idea that, and this is simple, but who wants to be watched while brushing their teeth? That's the kind of stuff if somebody has a hygiene issue. That's unpleasant, but the system is set up to make that happen. But if remotely, we can look to make sure people are brushing their teeth properly and coach them on how to with technology, which is very off-the-shelf technology, suddenly that need disappears quickly and the outcomes improve, right? Because people are actually learning the proper techniques so those are some examples, and it creates a sense of self and confidence, too, that's been really, really cool to see. <laughs> I think you're proving that that it has its it has its benefits for the full spectrum of those that we support. One of the bigger surprises that I have had, we put to, uh, in in our pilot, we put together a sensory room. And I, we put it together, it, it felt like we had to have it, right? I mean, we're doing all of these things. Of course, we need a sensory room, but it's really used and it is a great data element, right? So we can see if people are utilizing it more frequently, if, if stress is higher. 
I mean, we all, I've decided, need sensory rooms in, in our own houses because it is a great space to be able to decompress, especially if you're overstimulated. That is not just people on the autism spectrum, right? And I can say the last 18 months, I have needed a sensory room. And so that, that idea, one, there's so much adaptation for it, but two, it's real. It's really meaningful. It adds value to people's lives and it gives them coping skills to be independent, right? I don't have a staff there to say, I'm so mad that guy ate my yogurt. Instead, my options are to go to the sensory room and calm down or go to my room and calm down. And so those coping skills that people didn't have the opportunity to try on they're not only trying them on, they're using them very effectively. Well, and I, I think the from the practical standpoint too, one of the things that we looked at in the beginning and I knew was going to get asked of working in this field for so long is the thing we're gonna hear over and over again is, well, yeah, that works for that person, but it doesn't work for everybody. And at the end of the day, the reality answer is you're right. Like I don't have a tech solution for someone who has a trach or a G-tube or that can cut up and prep a meal. I know KFC has a robot that can cook a meal, but you know, we haven't found a good solution for all of those things. So there are still times where we need staff and it's not a good fit for everyone. What we have found though, is that for a full technology first model where technology is your main support delivery system, easily 20% of our population at Lab that we've looked at fit into that model. That's kind of our low hanging fruit. We think it's probably 40 to 45% of the population that we serve in that in talking with agencies in other states and across Ohio, we found that's probably pretty close to how it would work using our assessment tools that we have. But what we found is that just because someone may not be okay, I'm, I'm gonna go full in on almost all of my needs are solved through technology, there are still components that can be used for almost anyone. And so what we have done, and I think it really is going to be beneficial as we continue to go forward, is we didn't just say, let's find a tech package that will work for as many people and that will be what we use over and over. What we did is instead we worked with an o the OTs at Xavier University in their master's program to say, what are the needs of an individual that we serve? And it goes everything from what type of furniture and carpet do you need in their house to what type of medication dispenser should you have? And we looked at all of those things and then looked at what technology solutions exist for all of these areas. And it's it was deep. I think we have 184 solutions that must be solved if we have any business pulling a, a physical staff member out. And what we found is that there's so many options that can be used across the board. So if somebody can't tolerate wearing a smartwatch or carrying a phone, um, we have an individual like that. He lost three phones. And finally, we decided we can only replace so many phones. And it's amazing how even with the technology that, well, you can't, it's really hard to lose an iPhone. Well, apparently it's possible. So we, we found a different tool. You know, there's other things that could be embedded in clothing or other mechanisms that can assist with those type of community-based services. And so really it's looking at what's best for the individual. And that's why we're developing a, an assessment tool that helps us define what are the outcomes for the individual? What's important to them? What's important for us as we serve them and important for them? And then how do we solve? And then we find that it, it just gets, there's more and more out there. You know, we started with looking at, okay, let's find a good medication dispenser and found there wasn't really a great one that we loved. So we reached out to Stanley Black and Decker Health and said, let's develop a medication dispenser for people with disabilities. And as we were developing it, they thought, well, what if we build in other health devices that could work? And now we're, you know, we're nine devices deep into this first thing where in the beginning, all I wanted was a new cup to hold the medication that would work better for our population. And, and that alone 
will go so far for someone who really does have staff all the time, but this could help them with just that need. I would say if, if I have advice for everyone who's thinking, I don't know where to start, you're right, it is hard. Nobody knows where to start. And in the middle of how do I begin when I've got everything else going on, the answer is why wait? Waiting isn't going to solve anything either. Start where you can. Start with little things. Start exposing people. Yesterday, I had a great opportunity to tour three different groups of school-age transition students who are going to be entering our community outside of the school system for the first time this year and talking about how they could use technology. And these kids that are in our school system, they know technology. They use it. It's part of their life. And unfortunately, when they leave the school system, a lot of times they lose all the technology because our agency providers haven't kept up. And so all this institutional buildup of technology and using it in your life, all that knowledge gets lost. And so trying to bridge that gap as well as ensuring that people are ready for it, they want it, the, the buy-in isn't as hard as we think it's going to be. And the data is proving, you know, we, we're going to be publishing data about this in the next year or so, but the outcomes are great. The people are more independent and they're they're just as if not safer than they were without the technology and people there. We're going to have a, a part two. I'm hoping that you two will <laughs> commit to that uh, as we do that, because there is so much more to cover. But touch on, can you feel, my belief, honestly, is that is if you give people more control and autonomy, you know, their own sense of dignity and self-worth increases. So can perhaps... Uh, if that's correct, and you're seeing that, can we sort of finish this conversation with what you're seeing there? I will say when you go into our pilot home in particular, right, you have guys that are living their own lives. They're setting the bar pretty high for all of us. So, you know, you've got one young man who is on a kick to lose weight and to get in shape. So if you're not there, he will leave and say, I've got to go on a run. So he'll take whatever he needs to make sure that if there's any issues, but he's literally going and he's jogging in his neighborhood and is training for various races, right? And that's on his terms. Nobody is telling him to do that. Nobody is demanding that of him. He's so proud of himself. I think the um, we have one young man who is so excited. Again, he can control the oven for the first time. He is living without staff 24-7 for the first time. And the idea that he is on the cutting edge of changing things for other folks. So he has been part of speaking out and talking about the experiences. And that takes a lot of guts and courage, right? He's part of an experiment and he offered himself up to do that. And he's really proud of that. And he should be. He is a leader in the, that space. So I think that is another thing, too, is seeing folks talk about their experience, that it matters. People want to know how they're feeling, how it's working for them. So you can see that confidence build. It's not just, you know, whether that's the physical health or whether that's the emotional confidence. And I think folks that have gone on a tour can testify. The house is really relaxing. The pressure, the guys own the space. They own their space and you are entering their space. And so it is not the feeling of any type of group home. It is you are walking into somebody's home and you are a guest there. And I think that is also the vibe that we are going through in all of these homes is that we are a guest and they have control of their space. And that also is a mindset change too versus staff welcoming people and walking through a group home setting. 
So I would say those are some of the changes that you will see are folks answering the door, controlling their space, giving permission, and really feeling like they are the self-advocates and they are part of changing the system and they are partners in changing the system. So those would be some things I, I would offer in terms of changes, Brian. I don't know. Yeah, and I would say the the thing that we saw after a few months into the the program, so we have we started with four individuals. We're up to thirty some. I think it's thirty seven is what we're up to now that are using the smart living technology based model. And what we found after a few months, and it's replicated as we add people in, is their use of the technology hits a point where it just starts to drop. In the beginning, we were we were kind of freaked out about it because we thought, oh my gosh, they're either bored with it, it's not working. And we went back and we dug into it and we said, okay, we noticed that you're not calling out for staff as often. You're not using this piece of technology as often. What's, is it not working for you? Should we try a different way? You know, from our point of view, we thought, how do we force them to use this technology more and more thinking, you know, they need us so much. How could they possibly stop reaching out to us? They need us. And what we were told overwhelmingly is, well, now I know how to do it. I don't need you anymore. Or, you know, we have one individual who has not reached out and pushed that button to interact with staff. It was a couple of weeks went by and what we found is like, well, I didn't need them anymore. I found someone else who could help me with that in my community. You know, if I needed a, if I needed this part, I would reach out to a friend or my roommate helped me solve this problem. Or Dan over here is actually really good at making sure we get the meals cooked. So when I had a problem with cooking the meal, I just asked him how to help me. And that's what we're seeing what you described, Director Davis, is so true that for so long we thought, well, people just need us so much, and they do in some areas, and we are very grateful for the service we provide. But the more opportunities and the more autonomy we give people, the more it exponentially grows what they can do and want to do for themselves. I am so appreciative for that. It's exciting. It is affirming, isn't it? It's uh, everything, everything. So. I can't tell you enough about how exciting this is to me, meaningful it is to me, to us, you know, and where we can go. And for your investment and effort and commitment to this, uh, I think is remarkable and so very appreciated. I think if we can have a part two, then we will talk about how you did it. I think that was interesting. And then, you know, how you're going to work with us. We've got some grand opportunities that you've been uh, grateful to accept, so to speak, and we'll talk about how you know how we can um, use you to assist as we move forward. Thank you so very much to Susan and Brian and to Lad and to all their efforts. I hope this was an exciting conversation for you. It certainly and obviously was to me, you know, as to where we're going to go. So we will do that. We will get back with them, and we so appreciate you listening to our podcasts. So to everyone, you take care of yourselves. Thank you. You've just listened to another episode of the official podcast of the Ohio Department of Developmental Disabilities. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and share with others. For more news and information from the Ohio Department of Developmental Disabilities, please visit dodd.ohio.gov. You may also subscribe to our monthly publications and follow DODD on social media and connect with us in our Facebook forums.